You're listening to a podcast by Lance Lambert Ministries. For more information on this ministry, visit lancelambert.org. After we are born again, does God have a plan for our lives? Is our salvation the end of God's purpose for us, or is it the beginning? In this encouraging and edifying episode, Lance teaches about the three basic elements in all of God's dealings with his people. Let's listen. If you will turn to 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 10 and 11. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 10 and 11. And the God of all grace, who called you unto his eternal glory in Christ, after that ye have suffered a little while, shall himself perfect, establish, strengthen you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I have just a little word on my heart. It's a little, a little word in one sense. It's as big as eternity uh, in another. Um, it is especially, I believe, for those of you who are going to be baptized tonight, or those of you who have been baptized on Thursday. But of course it is for everyone. And it is simply this, I'm not going to talk so much about salvation, I'm going to take it for granted that you not only know what it is to be saved, obviously, but that you know something of the fullness of your salvation. So I'm not going to talk about all that is included in our so great salvation. That is, to be saved by the grace of God, to be justified, to have a standing before God, which circumstance, feeling, emotion, time, situation does not change. We have an eternal standing before God, which he has given us through his grace on the basis of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a clothing with which to come before God, the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. It never decays, it never fades, it is not changed, it is eternal. We have that. We have the indwelling of our Lord Jesus, who's all part of our so great salvation. And we have, of course, the empowering and anointing of the Holy Spirit with all his wonderful gifts. Um, All this is part of our salvation. Now, what I want to speak about this morning are three vital and basic elements in God's dealings with you. The tragedy is this, and I must say this quite dogmatically, uh, that the devil has worked such a marvelous work, such a terrible work, that a large, large number of Christians, perhaps the majority of Christians, are strangers to these three elements. They have got stuck with the means and have not gone on to the end. And they have got stuck only with their so great salvation, which is so great. But they make their salvation the end instead of the mean. And I want to talk about the end. I want to talk about the end of the Lord. I want to speak about these three basic elements. You've got them here. These are the three basic vital elements in all God's dealings with his people, whether we know it or not. The first is his eternal purpose. That's the first. The second is the church of God. And the third 
is to be an overcomer. Those are the three absolutely vital elements in all God's dealings with his people wherever they are. And you can understand that if the devil cannot stop us from being saved, he will rob us of an understanding of what God is really seeking to do with us. We have it in this verse. His eternal purpose, the God of all grace who called you unto his eternal glory. His eternal glory. Those three words sum up the eternal purpose of God. His eternal glory. The church of God. The simplest uh, explanation, the simplest interpretation of the church is contained in two words. In Christ. In Christ. So we've got it again. The God of all grace who called you unto his eternal glory in Christ. And in Christ we begin to discover that there are a lot of others. <laughs> Not just an individual personal thing. We find all the rest of the family. And here is the overcoming part of it. After that ye have suffered a little while, shall himself perfect, establish, strengthen you. Well now let's have a little closer look at these three because we haven't so much time um, this morning. But all I can do is touch on them and trust that the Holy Spirit will so um, uh, write this in your hearts uh, that in the years to come these three matters will become uh, a universe of meaning uh, to you through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The eternal purpose of God. Oh, how terrible it is that there are so many children of God who haven't the slightest idea as to what God's eternal purpose is. All they know is that they're here on, on this earth and, thank God, they know that Jesus has died for them and that they've been forgiven and that they have become children of God. And that's where it ends. They haven't the slightest idea as to what lies behind the creation of this universe, what lies behind the creation of man, what lies behind the constitution of man, why we are constituted in the way that we are constituted. Why we are unique in the creation. In that we are, we have spirit. We have spirits. There is spirit in us. There's, this is unique. No, none of the animal creation, none of the vegetable creation, none of the rest of the creation of God has spirit in it. Uh, we have a spirit which is the same substance as God himself. He's done something to us. People don't under ask any questions like this. What lies behind it? Why am I thus made? Why am I spirit, soul and body? Why has God gone to such trouble to save me? What is the end of my salvation? Is it really just to sit, as it were, in heaven for all eternity playing a harp? I don't think there are many here in the company here that would uh, um, subscribe to that. But you know that so often because of the terminology of our hymns, many people's ideas of heaven, heaven is sort of standing on a rather slippery glassy sea and playing a harp forever and ever and ever, being a part of a kind of eternal Emmanuel choir. 
um, or a hallelujah chorus that goes on forever and ever. Of course, the Word of God reveals to us that song will be unending in heaven and praise will be unending in heaven. Worship will be unending in heaven. But so will work. So cheer up, everybody. <laughs> so will work. God didn't make us creative beings just simply that we might lie there doing nothing. He's made creative beings so that there's going to be some outlet for this creativity, this, this genius that God has put into us. Once it is bonded and united with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now then we mustn't spend too much just introducing this matter. His eternal purpose. If you look in, in Ephesians and chapter 3 and verse 11 we read this, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. According to his eternal purpose, which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or another version puts it, uh, which he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, if you look at Ephesians 1 and um, verse 9, we have these this tremendous statement, making known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him, that's in Christ, unto a dispensation of the fullness of the time, to sum up all things in Christ. To sum up all things in Christ. What is God's eternal purpose? To sum up all things in Christ that everything may be an expression of our Lord Jesus Christ, that everything might be a manifestation of the beauty and the glory and uh, the power uh, that is in uh, him, his eternal purpose. Why did God create you and me? He created you and me that we might become partakers of the divine nature. He created you and, 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 and me that we might come into a relationship with God which means that we have the very life of God in us and that we are, as it were, lost in the life of God. And that in this sense, we all together become part of that. Well, let's first get it on the personal level. Um, what is, is the eternal purpose of God which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord? Originally, God's purpose was that man should, as it were, take of the tree of life. And we know that the tree of life um, represents the life of God, eternal life. You remember, the Lord said after they'd fallen, he put cherubim uh, guarding the way to the tree of life, lest they should eat of that tree and live forever. Lest this condition become an eternal condition, the fall. So he would not allow us a ri any right to the, to the tree of life. But God's original plan was that man should take of the life of God, should become a partaker of the divine nature. When you eat something, it becomes you. You eat an apple, it becomes your flesh and blood. You eat a banana, it becomes your flesh and blood. You eat fish, it becomes your flesh and blood. What you've eaten for breakfast this morning is already your flesh and blood. Think of that. It's all, all those different things have now been um, uh, um, changed and they have become your very being. What you have eaten has become you. What you've eaten has become you. Think of it. Um, well now, uh, the, the tree of life stood just for that. You, you, you receive the Lord. You partake of the divine nature. You 
putting it almost blasphemously, you eat the Lord. You eat of his life. You, you, you take of him. This is what the Lord Jesus meant when he, when he said, He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood abideth in me and I in him. This was the very purpose of God at the beginning. And if man had only taken that, that step, he would have become one with God in that sense. First of all, life would have come into him. He would have received the very nature and life of God. He would have received eternal life. And then the second thing that would have happened would have been that there would have been uh, uh, a, a testing and then a transfiguration in glory. Now we see this in our Lord Jesus Christ in Mark chapter 9. You remember when he went up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He didn't go up there as God. He went up there as man. And then the most amazing thing happened to him. It wasn't like a spotlight of glory shining on him from out of heaven. But from within him, something happened and his very body became different. It was transfigured in glory. The glory of God shone out of him, out of his hair, out of his flesh, out of his skin, through his clothes. And the apostles say his clothes glistered. They were more white than any bleach could make them. Now, these are the statements of eyewitnesses. I mean, would you th sit down uh, when you were thinking out something and sort of say something like, well, and his clothes, they were, they, no, no laundry woman would have ever got them as white as that. That's exactly what one of the apostles says. He says, they glistered. Uh, uh, no, no bleacher could do it. Well, what had happened? It wasn't <clears throat> that a great spotlight of glory had shone on our Lord. It was that from within him, something had happened. His very body became transfigured in glory. Now, think of it. Dear child of God, that's what would have happened to you and me if we hadn't fallen. If this world had never fallen away from God, that's what would have happened. At some point, Adam and Eve would have been transfigured figured in the glory of God. Their, their earthly bodies would suddenly have gone into another dimension. They would have still been themselves, still been their personalities, still been absolutely what they were, and yet somehow they would have been transfigured in glory. Now do you begin to understand what the scripture means? For, we, for there is no difference. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Where the Lord Jesus went through as man, per because he was sinless and perfect, to the glory of God, we fell short. Now that was God's eternal, that was God's eternal purpose. That we might become the manifestation of his glory. It's a very interesting thing in scripture. That the first time that the glory of God touches the earth, it is in his tabernacle. You had that in uh, Exodus and chapter 40. And then the second time his glory touches the earth, it is when the temple is built in Solomon, in 1 Kings uh, 6 and 7. Isn't this interesting? It, when we come to the end of the Bible, we find that it is the city of God, the wife of the Lamb, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, having the glory of God. And it says, and the nations shall walk in the light of it. Uh, in other words, this glory of God is connected with man and God being one. 
as if God wants to reveal himself, express himself in a unique and singular way, a way in which this natural creation cannot express the glory of God, in which nothing else can express the glory of God. He needs a vessel which can express his glory. And we don't even know what God is going to do in the end. All we know is that his eternal purpose began with getting men to become partakers of his divine nature, being one with him and being glorified in him. And then, whatever God had in his mind for this natural creation, for this heaven and this earth, would then begin to come to pass. We don't even know what it is. This is the wonderful thing. And so the Bible begins with two people and ends with two people. But it begins with two people who fell and it ends with, a, with, with two people, with Christ and the wife of Christ, or the wife of the Lamb, the Lamb and the wife of the Lamb. Um, uh, redeemed. That great company redeemed uh, by the blood of the Lamb, reconciled to God through him. And the Bible ends with a marriage. And these two go out together, and we don't know all that they're going to do or what they're going to do in eternity. All we know is that they go out, as it were, hand in hand. They go out after all the trials, all the conflict, all the antagonism of Satan, and of this world, these two have been finally brought together. You see, dear child of God, at present, we're only betrothed. We're not married. We're only engaged. As yet, we have not been married. The marriage supper of the Lamb is still to come. And if, as sometimes we sing, it is so wonderful now, and we sometimes touch points of glory which transport us, whatever is it going to be like, when we're actually finally married to the Lord. That's all yet to be. And then, of course, all this whole matter of time will be finished. Uh, it's a parenthesis. It's as if God puts the last bracket in and says, now that it's all over, it's finished. But he says in Revelation 21, and the former things have passed away. As if the bracket's gone, there, and now it's gone. Now we can get on with the job. Whatever the job is. And we don't know what the job is. All we know is that we've got to be with the Lord, one with the Lord, and we're going to be the wife of the Lamb. But what the real job for all eternity is, we don't know, except that all those former things, death, sorrow, crying, mourning, sin, have passed away. The eternal purpose of God. Go back again to this wonderful little word. The God of all grace who hath called you unto his eternal glory in Christ Jesus. The God of all grace who hath called you unto his eternal glory in Christ Jesus. His eternal purpose to make us one. And if we're going to be if we're one with him, then we are one with one another. Now, the second thing is the church. The eternal purpose of God, of course, is all connected uh, with this. And um, we've already really almost covered part of the matter, but not the part that I believe to be the most practical and essential. We have really said that to, we, to be partakers of the divine nature. Now, that is what the church is. The church isn't an organization. It's not an institution. It's not a building. The church is really to be in Christ. Christ is the church. To be in him.
to be part of him, to be members of Christ and members one of another. Have you ever noticed the little phrase which has lived to me recently uh, more and more, Romans 12 and verse 5, Romans 12, verse 5. It's one little preposition that's lived to me so greatly. I knew I've known this scripture for years, but there's one little preposition here that's made it live to me recently in a new way. For even as we have many members in one body and all the members have not the same office, verse 4, so we who are many are one body in Christ and severally members one of another. Now, it doesn't say, as most people read it, one body of Christ. Or we are one, we are the one body of Christ. But it says we are one body in Christ. We are one body in Christ. And then again, look at, look at Ephesians uh, chapter um, 2 and verse um, 21. In whom the whole building fitly framed together groweth into a holy temple in the Lord. Not a holy temple of the Lord, a holy temple in the Lord. So we are in him. This temple is in him. Do you understand? Now we begin to understand what the church is. We begin to realize that the church is simply that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. We begin to realize the extent of it. Why? It means that every single person who's in Christ belongs to me and I to him. I can't help it if he happens to be um, uh, some strange label that I don't exactly like. What can I do about it? If God has brought him in Christ, he's got as much right to be in Christ as I have. How can I say, oh, you're a Catholic? Hmm. You can't be in Christ. Only Protestants are in Christ. God evidently disregards this uh, 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 to the upset of some. Um, he brings in people who are, who are quite of a different order. And they're in Christ. When I find them in Christ, I'm in Christ. What am I to do? It's not that we become partakers of one another's sins. We don't touch what is wrong. But in Christ we belong to each other. We cannot be anything else. So if I find someone who's a Protestant who's not born again, he's out of Christ. And if I find a Catholic who's born again, he's in Christ. So my dear Catholic brother belongs to me more than my Protestant friend who is not born again. You see, we're in Christ and Christ is in us. But now let's come down to the... the this second element just uh, at least to touch on it or oh, what is it it's just this that if the eternal purpose of God is one great vital basic element in all God's dealings with you the second is the church but not the church in a vague ethereal abstract mystical way up there you know we're all one it's invisible and it's all up there in the sky uh, no the church comes right down to earth. And the whole matter of our being in Christ is put to the test here on earth. In the end it becomes a matter of where uh, we are living, isn't it? I can talk about the, the, the saints in Melbourne. I say, oh, how wonderful they are. The children of God in, in, in Australia. I'm so one with them. Of course I can be one with them. 
There are thousands of miles away. Anyone can be one with people that are thousands of miles away. Why someone that you clash with every single day? Once they go to the other side of the globe, gone to Tokyo, you can say, ah, ah, we're one in the Lord. You don't have any more problems. They don't, they don't irritate you anymore. You don't clash with them temperamentally. They're no problem to you. They're the other side of the globe. God says that doesn't mean a thing. That doesn't mean a thing. You can talk to the cows come home being about the oneness uh, of Christ. But what really matters is what you are doing with the saints where you live. For if you can't be one with them and cannot express the unity of the Lord Jesus Christ where you live, you certainly know nothing about the oneness of Christ universally. My goodness me, people sort of say, we're one when I think of all the saints in heaven. My word, some of them are very difficult. I'm not saying that they're going to be difficult in eternity, but I'd like to see how some of them would go on with dear Martin Luther. Or some of the others that I will not mention. A long list of them I could give to you of, of, of men of God. But they weren't. They weren't little icing sugar statues, sweet and easy, and everything else. These were flesh and blood people. Well, we've known some of them ourselves. Think of dear old C.T. Studd. My goodness me. Down here, it ended up with about 20 people being able to be with him when he finally went into glory. The rest gave up. He was a difficult brother. <laughs> An extremely difficult brother. Well, it's all very well for you to say, oh, I'm one with the saints, the communion of the saints. I believe in the communion of the saints. The fact is, God says, now just wait. Before we get to talking like United Nations, let's just ask you, how are you getting on with the saints where you live? That's where it all comes down to. It's where you live. That's where it's all put to the test. And so you see, we find it most marvelously put in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. Uh, but if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how men ought to behave themselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Well, what's that got to do with how you ought to behave in the church? Marvellous. You see, you can say the creed, and you have no practical experience of how you ought to behave in the house of God. Now, behaving just doesn't simply mean your outward uh, demeanor or, or, or character or deportment, merely, although it includes that. Behavior means how you get on with the saints, how you work together as a team, how you submit one to another in the fear of Christ how you are related to one another, how you really are going through together. All these things are part of how one ought to behave in the house of God, the pillar and ground of the truth. I feel so sorry for these dear butterfly Christians all the time fluttering from place to place, from place to place. Here they come and they suck the, the honey of this sermon and then whipped off. They flutter with their beautiful colors to some other place and then they suck a little bit of honey there and then whoops, they go and off they go to somewhere else. And What do they get? All they get is knowledge, knowledge and more knowledge. 
and sometimes they see a miracle or two which excites them no end. Well, what does that do? What does what seeing a miracle do? What's that going to help you? How's it going to help you, seeing a miracle? Thank God for miracles. But believe me, you could have seen Lazarus raised from the dead and it wouldn't have done you much good. All you would have been able to say to whoever asked was, I was there. And such people can be crashing bores. <laughs> if they haven't got an inward experience of the Lord, do they know what the meaning of Lazarus being raised from the dead is? Has it got into them? Do they know what it is to be raised from the dead? Have the dead clothes been taken from them? Are they walking in newness of life? Do they know something of the power of the Holy Spirit? Is the truth of Lazarus' resurrection from the dead in them? All this is how you ought to behave in the house of God, uh, the church uh, of the living uh, God. It all comes down to that. And so the second great element in all God's dealings with you is to put to the test everything. He wants to, to bring you into that house of his. Now, it says in um, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, ye also as living stones are built up a spiritual house. Ye also as living stones are built up a spiritual house. One living stone on the right foundation doesn't make a house. And a whole collection of living stones on the right foundation doesn't make a house. As the folks building up the top of the garden have discovered, every brick's got to find its relationship to the rest. It's only when living stones find their relatedness, one to the other, on the right foundation, that a house begins to appear. You may be a living stone, thank God for that. You may be more than a living stone, I mean you may be a stone quarried out of Christ, and thank God you're living as well. That's uh, something to praise the Lord for. You're really living, not in name, but in truth. But that's not good enough. Do you really think that all God wants for you is to be some little living stone, sort of um, doing your own little thing, somewhere here, someone there? Of course not. God wants you to be built up a spiritual house, and that requires discipline. If every little stone sort of says, I'm going to choose who comes next to me, I'm not going to have that stone or that stone or the other stone. There's going to be a mess. The stones have got to be built and built where the builder wants them to go. And once they find their proper relationship and recognize it and settle to it, then the house begins to take shape. Oh, there's so much here that we could dwell on. But you see, those of you who have been baptized, or the rest of you as well, that this is one of the basic elements in all God's dealings with you. And you are contradicting the very purpose of God when you refuse to allow him to deal with you in this way. There are two things in the word of God. There's our inheritance and there is his inheritance. Our inheritance is what we get in him. But his inheritance is what he gets in us. Now salvation is what we get. But the church is what he gets. That's why it's called the bride or the wife of the Lamb. That's his inheritance. Now, dear child of God, may I ask you a simple question? Which inheritance are you making the most of? And 
If you are all the time bothered about your inheritance, my inheritance, what I'm getting, you judge everything by what I get. I didn't get much out of that. I got a lot out of that. That was good because I got something. Um, if that's the way you judge everything, does it not explain your restlessness and your unhappiness and the fact that the joys that you have are very transient still? There comes a point when we have to lay down our lives for him and for the rest of the family. No stones can be built together till they lay down their lives. If you don't lay down your life, you cannot find your place in the building. So here is this second vital element, the church. And it comes right down to here, which is the church here in the very area in which we're found. And it's a matter of our relationship to one another. The third um, basic and vital element is overcoming. Something that I think is often overlooked. Some people get to the second and they never go beyond that. But the whole point is this. Some people seem to think that once you've got the church, it should be perfect. Now they say, now of course we're looking for a New Testament church. And the New Testament church is something that is spotless, without blemish. It's absolutely perfect. Every time they meet together, the place is shaken where they meet. Uh, their, their idea is along that line, you know, absolutely marvellous. What they forget, because they are reading it with certain types of spectacles, what they forget is that within a week there was an Ananias and a Sapphira who dropped dead. Well, it's one thing to have funeral services, but... That kind, not exactly kind that's going to be too much glory in. And there are a lot of other problems too that start to emerge before long. And when we look really into the New Testament, we discover that these churches are just churches that are very much like what we know. There, there's all the flesh and blood bubbling up, there are the collisions and the difficulties and the strains and the tensions and everything else. And that's why we have this marvellous word again and again in Revelation and uh, chapter 2 and chapter 3. I will just read chapter 3, one example of it. Verse 21. He that overcometh, I will give to him to sit down with me in my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. And this is connected in Revelation 21 and verse 7. He that overcometh shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Overcoming. What is overcoming? That simply, first of all, you know what the eternal purpose of God is. Secondly, you're in your place in the church of God where you live. And thirdly, you overcome by the grace of God there. You overcome. And in the end, you see, this is all God's dealings with you are to this end. You see, people get the idea that, oh, well, I suppose this is it. We're to be together. We're to suffer together. We're to be related to each other. We're to be disciplined and so on. But dear child of God, what's God doing all this for? Because he loves discipline? Because he likes giving you a hard time? Not at all. God has an eternity in front of us that he knows all about. And God is training us for eternity. 
And that's what overcoming is related to. Do you really mean to tell me that God is just going to sit every single converted person on a throne for all eternity away with the idea? I should fear eternity no end if some of the Christians I'm acquainted with are going to sit on thrones ruling for all eternity. My goodness me. It would be impossible. But the Bible doesn't say that every Christian is going to automatically sit on the throne. It doesn't say that automatically God just gives you a title and sits you on a golden throne and gives you a great area of the earth just because you've been saved. There's an if. If we suffer with him, we shall also be glorified with him. And then again in another place it says, If we endure, we shall also reign with him. He that overcometh shall sit down with me in my throne. Why overcoming? Because in the overcoming, God is training you how to be on top. He will allow situations to come into your life that will push you down. Inexplicable things. Things that cannot find any normal um, explanation. But they will come and, and that is your test as to whether by the grace of God you can reign with Christ in that situation. You will find pressures and tensions and collisions with other believers. And your whole understanding of the oneness of Christ will be tested to the nth degree. But the question is, can you go through, not with a kind of, hmm, I'm right and so and so is wrong. Will one day I shall be, uh, have some glory and so and so will be down there and they'll see it. That kind of, not that at all, but when you really know how, what it is to be, uh, to be broken and to be humble and, and, and to walk away of your reputation being destroyed, not with any bitterness in your heart, or do you think that any of us are going to reign on, uh, uh, with Christ with a kind of bitterness in our background? We've spent the whole of our lives here eaten up with bitterness and self-pity. What kind of royal character is that? Do we see anything like that in our Lord Jesus? None at all. So, dear child of God, surrender to your Lord. Let him do this work in you and be an overcomer. Remember it all with an eternity in view. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us an exceeding and eternal weight of glory, whilst we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are transient or temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Three vital elements. The eternal purpose of God, the church of God, the house of God, the church of the living God, and overcoming. May the Lord help us, each one. Now, Lord, we commit this time to Thee, and we ask Thee, Lord, that Thou wilt write this upon our heart. What we don't understand, Lord, keep it, we pray, in our memories, and at the right time, Lord, bring it to us as revelation. And, O oh, Father, we pray that every one of us may know not only what Thy purpose is, and not only to be where we should be with one another in Christ, but, Lord, we may know what it is to overcome by thy grace. O oh, Father, hear us then as we give ourselves to thee in the name of our Lord.
Jesus Christ. Amen. May the Lord reveal to you His eternal purpose in your life. May you know the deep, deep love of Jesus. Watch it.